Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if you're locked out on a Thursday and need a locksmith, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details. Taking stock. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland. Driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstocknt. Coming up, are supermarkets ripping Irish consumers off compared to our European counterparts? From rising fuel costs to higher wage demands, is now the time for the ECB to tackle the cost of living? And vive la France! Why Brexit's Michel Barnier is shaping up to take on Emmanuel Macron in the French presidential elections. But first up, the profit margins of Irish supermarkets have always been classed as top secret. It's caused many to wonder, are Irish consumers being ripped off in comparison to the UK shoppers? But for the first time in the recent history, one of the Irish operators has in fact revealed their profit margins. Here to discuss the issue, we're joined now by Mark Paul, who is Business Affairs Correspondent at the Irish Time, and he's been examining this issue. Mark, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Mandy. How are you? Very good. Mark, before we get stuck into the profits, can you just talk us through who the main players are in this uh, retail space and tell us what they actually do publish? Well, the, the, the three biggest operators are Dunn Stores, Tesco and Supervalue. And they all have in or around the same, around about 22% of the market each. Um, and then um, um, two German discount operators, Aldi and Lidl, um, between them have just over a quarter between them. Now, they're the sort of the Johnny-come-latelys of the market. They, 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 they joined uh, around about 22 years ago, 23 years ago, they, they came into the market. Um, and so so they are the, uh, they, they are the two 20-year-old uh, ups starts if you like and there's not an awful lot of financial information goes around the Irish um, grocery sector um, um, none of the Irish supermarket chains until now has ever reported its profits um, Dunstores is, is one of the most secretive companies in the state it never reports any finances um, Tesco does report its Irish sales um, but not its profits and Musgrave reports as a group reports its sales and profits but but it doesn't break super value out of that and um, it's mixed up with its wholesale business um, and with a sort of retail brand Centra and so on um, and Aldi and Lidl have never uh, well Lidl has never traditionally reported profits and neither has Aldi Marks and Spencers has never uh, broken out its Irish grocery results um, and, and, and the first now to put its head above the parapet is Aldi Ireland um, which uh, which has revealed uh, for the first time its Irish financial performance and uh, and it gives a window into in, into the market. Yeah, and we'll come back to why exactly they're doing that now. But could you just tell me, Mark, why do you think Irish supermarkets are so reticent to discuss their financial performance? And, and, and does anyone care? Would it affect Irish consumers if they knew who was making profit and who was making the most profit? 
Well, I, I think that the reason that they, that they don't do it now is different to the reasons that they didn't report their profits before. I think the reason that they don't do it now is because it's just become the way things are done in the mm. Irish market. Um, um, but the reason that they didn't do it before was... Um, um, or certainly the suspicions were um, um, in, the, in the sort of really frothy Celtic Tiger years that um, foreign-based supermarkets, the likes of Tesco and so on, that they were doing particularly so well in the Irish market that they didn't want to break out the profits because people would would see, um, um, you know, I mean, that, that really Irish consumers were much more profitable for them than their consumers elsewhere. I mean, they, you know, it, it wasn't for nothing that, that the foreign supermarket chains used to call Ireland Treasure Island um, and because the suspicion was really that they were, you know, really drilling people here um, for profits but I think I think a culture just just mm. developed in the sector over yeah. the years I mean done stores and, 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 and you know they were all afraid to be first to jump um, but now Aldi has jumped in feet first I'm always a little bit suspicious of converts to transparency what prompted this from Aldi and, and just how well is that um, is that retailer doing here in Ireland well, look, they didn't do it out of the goodness of their heart, Mandy. Let's put it that way. Um, but it's all down to Brexit, basically. Um, and it's an obscure accounting rule. That means in the past, Aldi has always wrapped its Irish results up with its British results and reported them as a kind of a job lot. Um, um, and Aldi Ireland's operation here, it has 149 stores here. It has its own managing director and 4,600 staff. But it's effectively controlled from Britain. And there's, there, there's an accounting rule that says... If your company, um, you don't have to file accounts in Ireland as long as your headquarters is controlled from somewhere within the EU. And of course, Brexit happened and the transition period ran out. Um, and as a result of that, Aldi Ireland's headquarters effectively is uh, is controlled from outside of the European Union in Britain. And so they've had to file Irish accounts for the first time. And what it shows is that um, the, the accounts that they filed are for 2020 last year that's the first ones they filed but they've also disclosed the figures for 2019 to give us a comparison and what they show is that in in 2020 which includes the first 10 months of the pandemic um, their profits were up 46 percent Aldi Ireland have uh, basically 2 billion euros in sales in the Irish market over the course of 2020 their sales grew by 14 percent which is actually slightly behind the market i mean i mean the market went completely bonkers mm-hmm. in 2020 I, I i don't know about you manny but I, you know i was in and out of the supermarkets more times than in, last year than i had ever been because there was nowhere else to go and, and there was no bars no restaurants to go to we were all eating drinking so much at home and so the grocery sector really exploded and aldi you know we're just behind the market growth but where they where they are um, and doing pretty well is in the level of profits they're taking out of the irish market when you measure it as a as a percentage of sales aldi's stores in ireland are 70 percent more profitable than their stores in the uk that, yeah, those are the figures I, from 2020 that figure really stood out for me mark why is that i, I know you referred to ireland as treasure island before in this retest yeah. but exactly why is that why is it so much more here than it is perhaps in the uk well, I can tell you what, what Aldi's managing director, Niall O'Connor, told me when he revealed the numbers to me. The, the Irish profit margin is 3.6%, right? Which actually isn't a huge profit margin mm. in, the grand, in the grand scheme of things. But the profit margin in the UK is only 2.1%. Now, these German uh, multiples like Aldi and Lidl, they operate on really wafer-thin margins. Um, the reason he said that, that the Irish operation was so much more profitable as a percentage of sales was because, for two reasons. Number one, he said the UK is more competitive. 
competitive. It's a much bigger market with much bigger players and, and competition is much more aggressive and fierce over there. So that has an impact on prices. And the other reason that he gave was that he said the Irish operation, because it's so inextricably bound up with the British operation, they sort of piggyback on it. They, so they sort of they sort of come in on his coattails with some of their costs. Like, for example, um, you know, their app, their, t- their technology stuff is designed in the UK by the UK's technology team. There's no, there's no reason in the world, he says, for them to have two big IT teams. So they piggyback on stuff like that. So they can keep their costs lower by siphoning off, by, by, by basically using some of the functions in the UK. And, and he says it's more competitive over there. And that's why. Um, now, look, you know, look, look, there might be other factors in there as well. I mean, Irish consumers, you know, I mean, they can be pretty flahulock with uh, with their money. Um, and, and in recent years in particular, they've shown Irish consumers in the grocery sector have shown a real willingness to spend on premium products and to spend on brands. So, look, I, I'd imagine it's a, it's a little bit of all of those factors yeah. mashed in together. That makes sense that, you know, they don't have new standalone costs in Ireland for HQ and things and they can piggyback on that. But given yeah. given the amount um of sales and just sticking with Aldi on its own for a second um, have they intentions to reinvest back into Ireland are they going to expand here will our producers benefit what's next for them yeah, they they do have plans to expand. I mean, they've got 149 stores already. They've previously indicated that they'd like to get that up to about 200, but they've set out plans um, to invest 320 million euros over the next three years in another about around about 30 stores. Now, really, where where Aldi really need to invest is in the Dublin market. I mean, in the words of Niall O'Connor and um, um, Aldi Ireland's managing director, they were outgunned in Dublin in the pandemic by the by the bigger operators because they don't have as big of a footprint. And, you know, when the market went bonkers last year and we were all shopping um, like crazy, the Dublin market really was the place to be mm. because that's where people had the most money and, and, and the most disposable income. And Aldi's footprint in Dublin is actually fairly puny in, in, in relative terms. It's much stronger down the country. And there's there's a solid reason for that. It's really, really, really hard to get the big sites that it needs, the, these big greenfield sites in Dublin. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't do a kind of a... A high street operation, you know, like a like a like a like a like yes, an Aldi they're, Express they're, or something. They're on the outskirts of towns. They need a large area. They have a big footprint. So, yeah, yeah you can understand why um, rural settings would be, you know, easier for them. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Mark Paul, who's business affairs correspondent at the Irish Times. Mark, can you just go back to that thing you mentioned earlier, the, the, the Brexit bonus, if there's any at all, maybe it'll deliver some transparency into, into uh, reporting uh, from the retailers mm-hmm. in Ireland because that legislative amendment means that companies in Ireland whose effective head office is registered outside of the European Union have to reveal their results. Um, but mm-hmm. will that drive transparency for the indigenous and domestic uh, retailers? I'll tell you. I'll tell you who it could potentially affect, and that's Tesco and Marks and Spencers. Um, it's not going to affect Dunn Stores. Dunn Stores is an Irish company. It's an unlimited company. They, they won't have to file accounts. It's not going to affect Lidl, Aldi's compatriot, because Lidl's Irish numbers are, are wrapped up in a German company, and Germany, of course, is in the European Union, so they don't have to. It's not going to affect Super Value because they're part of an Irish company already. So that leaves Tesco and M&S. Now M&S only have a couple of percent of the market. They're pretty. 
they're pretty small. Um, so the real interesting thing to see will be will be how profitable is Tesco's um, um, Irish operation and how profitable is it in comparison to um, um, its, its stores in the UK. Now Tesco, I mean Tesco at a corporate level, at a, at a head office level, has really, really strong Irish links. I mean Ken Murphy is chief executive, is an Irish guy, he's from Cork I think. So there has always been questions asked of Tesco when it was the king of the Irish market at the, at the height of the Celtic Tiger. There was there was accusations I suppose slung its way, which Tesco always denied, but that, that they were really, you know, that they were really dragging a lot of profits out of Irish consumers. Um, it'll be interesting to see what they are now. I mean, if you look at Aldi's profits, 3.6%, right? Now, mm. let's, assume, let's assume that Tesco is in or around that kind of a ballpark. Before Aldi and Lidl arrived in the market just over 20 years ago, the average Irish supermarket made about 6% in the kind of Treasure Island days. Now, that mm. would have been fairly stratospheric for that sector. Yeah, you, you referred to Aldi and Lidl earlier as game changers and certainly um, their introduction, to my mind, is comparable to, to Ryanair in terms of closing the monopolies down on the Irish exactly. market. How significant do you think their introduction has been to that changing space? They have, I, I, look, it, it, I, it's my opinion, but I think a lot of people share this opinion that they have completely and utterly changed the market in, 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 in a way far beyond their market share. I mean, between them, they've got a quarter uh, of the market, which isn't bad over 20 mm. years from a standing start, but they've they've completely forced all of the other operators, Tesco, Super Value and Dunn's to change their models. Um, and, and, and they've done that with this relentless focus on price. I've spent a little bit of time behind the scenes looking at the operating models of both Aldi and Lidl. And it, it's all about small little details, a little bit like you mentioned Ryanair. It's the same kind of thing. I mean, for example, b- before they arrived, you know, all Irish supermarkets would have employed people to stack the shelves, you know, stack the shelves, stack the shelves. It's a big labor cost. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what Aldi and Lidl do is they get all of their um, um, products delivered on big sort of boxes and trays that you can just wheel out and throw onto the shelf in two seconds um, in the box. You don't take it out of a box and put it directly onto the shelf. You put the whole box onto the shelf. Now that sounds like a, like a minuscule change, but if you're stacking your shelves a couple of times a day and you can do it in one fifth or one quarter of the time, that, that adds up in labor costs. Another thing is that you often see with their own brand products in Aldi and Lidl, let's say if it's a box of tea bags, there'll often be four or five different barcodes on the box of tea bags. And the reason for that is that the person scanning them at the till doesn't have to twist it around several times looking for it. There's, there's always a barcode ready you scan it and you lash it through all of these little things add up and um, they're pretty the, the, one thing you, you would think that that companies like this that that, that are sort of lentils and costs that that they would be really heavy on their labor costs but actually they pay more than, than most other supermarket groups really that, that's very interesting could you expand on that a little bit they they do now. I don't. They they, they pay. I, I, look, in or around it, the starting per hour uh, would be in or around twelve or thirteen euro per hour in in both of them. Mm. But I mean, at a, at a very very young age, um, people can work their way up to management level at Aldi and Lidl, and and you know become area managers on like ninety ninety five grand with an Audi car, um, and you know and and to to do that before the age of thirty or thirty two, um, I mean I mean there's there's real career prospects there. They pay their staff very well. They look after them very well, and they're all. Very very young and one thing that I noticed actually a couple of years ago now the company has always played this down but if you look at Aldi's middle management structure if you try and trace it through LinkedIn or somewhere there's an awful lot of ex-army officers really? <laughs> ex-Irish army officers yeah. yeah who work for Aldi because you do your 20 years in the army um, and you're entitled to leave the army then with your mm-hmm. with your pension and so on you might be you know you might be 40 years of age it's or still or young or enough you can you can start something else 
Exactly, and 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 Aldi has snapped up an awful lot of ex-Irish army officers because I suppose they're very process-driven people. They're, they're people who are used to, to, to working and, in Rodin, yeah. logistics, and and it's it's very very interesting. Now, they've always played that down, but I mean the evidence is there when you look at its management structure. Mark, just at the outset, I asked you why is there a lack of transparency on the reporting front, and you said it's the way that it always was. So it's that culture of of I suppose secrecy, for want of a better word. Do you think mm. that this is is going to change now it'll change the culture it'll prompt more people to to move forward or, or reveal what their profits are well look if tesco go ahead and do it um and between tesco and aldi you'll have about, about 36 37 percent of the market so well over a third of the market and um, we'll be doing it already i don't think dunn's doors are ever going to do it it is just not the not way the margaret heffernan yeah. it's just not the culture and i don't think lidl uh, will do it because they don't have to and, and super value don't have to do it so look what you might find is that aldi and tesco if they have to do it will use the fact that they reveal their irish profits to to, to try and communicate to Irish customers that look we're really transparent we tell you how much money they make they might try and make, try and make some marketing hay out of it and maybe then you'll get a reaction um, but look I would imagine that there's probably not an awful lot in terms of profitability between all mm. the various operators from all these figures we should be able to sit down now because we know what the total market is worth and we know how what slice it has and we know how profitable it is we should be able to sit down on the back of the envelope kind of a thing and work out how profitable the others are I don't think there'll be any huge surprises in it but I mean, the level of competition, the secrecy in the market operationally and the competition between them for senior executives, all of that is going to go on. And look, ultimately, in a way, that's good for Irish consumers. I mean, there's been very, very little inflation in the grocery market over the last 20 years since the two German companies joined. There has been tension in the market with farmers and with suppliers, not just with Ollie and Needle, but with the fact that groceries are so cheap in Ireland. I mean, I mean, you can buy, you know, I mean, there's, there's, for example, you can find promotions in some of the supermarkets where you can buy, you know, six different types of veg for just a couple of euros. Yeah. Um, and those things have always caused tension. Um, so look, there's still a lot to go in the Irish market. There's also another thing with the Irish market is that we're not very big here on online grocery shopping, which I, which has always been surprising to me because Ireland is a fairly tech-savvy country, right? I mean, I mean, we all have smartphones and um, there's pretty good broadband coverage. We're a tech hub for Europe. Europe, yet um, um, only about 4% of Irish grocery sales, even after the pandemic, yeah, only I, about 4%. I, was, I was very surprised at those figures. Maybe it is that um, social side of shopping, I don't know, that you mentioned at the beginning, um, that Irish people like in a way that other it's, countries it's, don't. It's a, it's a, it's a little bit of that, yeah. I mean, look, maybe we've just all become saddles because we don't go to the pubs and restaurants as much and we go to supermarkets now for fun. But there is a, a social element to Irish shopping. Um, and you're right, there is a... And, you know, it's getting out there and sort of, you know, squeezing the sliced pan and all of that to see is it fresh. But there's also some, I think, some more mundane corporate reasons for it as well. One is that... It actually, most supermarkets lose money on online shopping on the delivery aspect of it. I mean, Aldi uh, uh, subcontracts it out to uh, to Deliveroo. Um, yeah, and, and why? Why? Do, that's the one question I want to ask you. So, why is the delivery part of Aldi and Little so weak? You know, they don't seem to invest in that. Is it because the transport cost is too much? Does it not give the return? It's because they would have to subsidize it yeah. um, um, and they would have to subsidize it because in order to charge what you would have to charge for online delivery to wash its face by itself, they think it would be just too much of an additional price for their customers to pay. So if they were to keep that price down to where it needs to be, they would have to suck 
you know, yeah. profits from, from, from the rest of the business to subsidize it. And the reason why they would have to subsidize it is because Ireland is, is you know, we've only got 5 million people in, in the market, Small in market, the Republic. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of it is dispersed over wide rural areas and Aldi in particular. I mean, it's very strong down the country, but I mean, you know, there could be, you know, 20 miles, 30 miles between its shops. So it's just not economic for them. Whereas in the UK, I mean, there's, you know, a huge, a much bigger market plowed onto a fairly small piece of land. Um, and it's much more economic to do it over there. Um, but look, Online will eventually grow because customers will demand it. It's just a case of how much it will cost and how much supermarkets will have to subsidise it going into the long term. Okay, well, despite the lack of transparency, we we do have to acknowledge that they employ thousands of people and they keep Irish suppliers going and they were a lifeline to us all during COVID-19, particularly the home delivery service, which was hugely important to many people who couldn't leave their homes. Mark, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. That's Mark Paul, Business Affairs Correspondent at the Irish Times. You're welcome, Andy. Thanks. Now, the French presidential elections will take place in April of next year and new challengers are emerging in the background and causing major disruption to the opinion polls. This election comes at a time when France increasingly finds its place in the world unsettled by geopolitical developments all around it. And we're joined now from Paris by journalist Victor Mallet of the Financial Times, who is the Paris bureau chief there. Victor, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us. Hello. Victor, now we obviously invited you here today to talk about the elections and the French political landscape, but um, obviously on Wednesday there was that desperate tragedy uh, where during an attempt to cross the English Channel from France, uh, a number of people died, including some women and some children. Um, And it has been a desperate human tragedy, uh, of course, but it's also further frayed relations between the French and British authorities. Now, you've been covering this and it's a desperately sad situation and all too familiar an incident but do you think it's enough to prompt a serious attempt by French, UK and EU authorities to finally tackle this problem together for once and for all? I think it might. Uh, I I noticed that in the week before this tragedy happened um, the two sides had actually been slightly less abusive of each other. You know, both French and British ministers and, and leaders had been a little bit more polite. They'd been trying to sort of cool down the, the, the tensions which had really been going on for quite a long time after Brexit. Um, and I think one reason for that is that everybody realised that this isn't really about Brexit, although, of course, it's worsened by the disputes over Brexit, over fish and over Northern Ireland and so on. Um, but I think the tragedy may hopefully galvanise the two sides into actually trying to find a solution uh, in cooperation with each other. And we'll come back to those relationships in in a few moments, Victor. But if we can just move on to the elections and the more general landscape in France. And before we talk about the other contenders, we might just examine a little bit the role of Macron. How will his presidency be viewed as presumably he seeks to get reelected? Has he changed France for the better? And is he a popular leader there? It's very hard to say. The opinion polls show that he is... Uh, the most popular of the would-be candidates, because not everyone has declared. Macron himself has not declared. Um, there are a lot of people in Paris in particular, I think, and even outside who say they hate him. But that is quite common for a French president uh, at this stage in his uh, or her mandate. There haven't been any women presidents yet to, to be hated by people. It's a very kind of confrontational political scene. But I think... On the whole, people think he's managed the the COVID uh, pandemic pretty well, uh, certainly as well as most of his neighbours. 
And uh, if there's disappointment on the right and the centre right, it's really because he hasn't been able to push through a lot of the economic reforms that he promised. On the other hand, he has done quite a few. He's kind of eased up the labour market and that has started to produce results. So, you know, it's it's a mixed bag. But uh, given the record of his records of his predecessors, he's actually not that unpopular. And he is, in fact, the leading candidate uh, in the polls at the moment for the election in April. Yeah, when you compare him to Hollande and Sarkozy, they were probably in a similar situation going into to their second uh, elections. Um, I'm interested in something that you said there about he's perceived to have handled the pandemic well, because there's been quite a lot of protest in France about the uh, COVID-19 situation, particularly the anti-vax movement. It's quite, quite dominant over there. It's been quite aggressive. Well, actually, funnily enough, before the pandemic, um, there was, and, and you know, right at the beginning, there was a very high uh, degree of pandem- of uh, vaccine scepticism in France. In fact, it was one of the most vaccine sceptical countries in the world. Uh, something like, you know, approaching half of people who are questioned said they were sort of opposed or, or suspicious of vaccines. But actually, when the uh, pandemic hit, and and particularly in July, when Macron said in order to uh, to get into a restaurant or to go on a train journey or a plane journey, you would need to have your health pass, which would have to basically include um, a vaccine. In fact, it turned out that a lot of the anti-vaxxers were not really very committed anti-vaxxers. And, and something like nine tenths of the French people eligible have actually had a vaccination now. Um, where, where there has been real sort of protests and violence is actually in uh, in Guadeloupe and Martinique in the Caribbean, which are French territories in the Caribbean. Uh, and and uh, there, there is much greater real suspicion of vaccines. And, and there were protests against the fact that health workers, for example, and far farmen and far women were supposed to, were, were obliged to have the vaccine. So, uh, but in France itself, I mean, given the degree of regular protests we have about everything mm. in Paris every weekend, it hasn't actually been that bad. When you look at the um, the general landscape there in the run-up to the election campaign, and although he hasn't declared, the right, it seems, is becoming quite a heavily populated space in the French uh, discourse, isn't it? Absolutely. And of course, the, the new kid on the block is this a uh, polemical journalist called Eric Zemmour, who sort of rose to prominence uh, on the back of a, of a talk show as, as a very right-wing commentator, uh, anti-migration, you know, believes in the great replacement theory, which says that we're going to be overwhelmed by Muslim migrants um, in, the, in the coming decades. Uh, and he is he has really shaken things up because he wasn't uh, anywhere on the scene uh, about three or four months ago. Uh, and he's gone right up in the polls. And at one point, and in fact, even now, he's second or perhaps third in the polls behind Macron. Um, and he's uh, challenging Le Pen, Marine Le Pen, the traditional far-right leader who's been around for a long time. She and her father uh, run something called the Rassemblement National, which used to be the National Front, the Front National. Uh, and they are now sort of neck and neck in the polls, these two very far-right parties. Uh, and it's true that the electorate as a whole is pretty much on the right at the moment and the left is is not really very visible. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Victor Mallet, who's Paris correspondent with the Financial Times. Yeah, he's a very divisive character, isn't he? Straight out of the Donald Trump playbook, it seemed uh, appealing to people's emotions rather than moving on a platform of, of policy. But if there was a split in the far right, would that be good for Macron? Uh, well, there, there is a split in the far right in the sense that 
you know, there's him and her, there's mm. Zamora and Le Pen, and he's ta- he's definitely taken votes from her or potential votes from her. But he's also taken potential votes from the centre right, who have sort of opted for Zamora, even though he's more extreme right than Le Pen is. He's sort of seen by the intelligentsia and the kind of traditional conservative centre right as more acceptable because he's more intellectual. He's a kind of, you know, he's a writer. So he seems more okay than a kind of working class champion like Marine Le Pen. Uh, And it's quite peculiar in that sense. Um, But but possibly, it's very hard to say at this stage, and we always get surprises in, in French elections, but it possibly could be bad for Macron, actually, because um, it could mean that in the second round, the sort of second and final round of the elections in France, the way it works here is you have a two round system, he could end up facing a centre right candidate, uh, like Xavier Bertrand or Valérie Pécresse or Michel Barnier, the former Brexit negotiator, instead of Le Pen or Zemmour, uh, because you basically get you narrow it down to the last two. Uh, And if that is the case, um, then Funnily enough, it might be more difficult for Macron because he's more similar and his policies are more similar to those of the centre-right. So if he faced a centre-right candidate, it would be tougher for him to differentiate himself uh, against that rival. That's very interesting. Another entrant to the race is somebody who we were very familiar with here in Ireland because of his role um, on the Brexit negotiations is Michel Barnier, who's seeking to become a candidate for, for his own party. Could you just talk to me about what his chances are within the party and how you think he might fare? Yeah, we won't know until the 4th of December. December. When he, when, yeah, that's right. When he first put in his his sort of his potential candidacy, and of course he has to be chosen by his party, Les Républicains, um, when he first put in, people didn't give him much chance because he was quite low in the polls. He had been a politician in France, but nobody really knew much about him. He was better known in Britain, actually, than he was in uh, in France at that point. Um, but he's kind of uh, steadily won support from a lot of party members, and they're the ones who vote in this, what is essentially a primary election restricted to party members. Uh, by being loyal to the party, he didn't leave the party um, in a half like some of the others did. So he, he has actually a chance. What we don't know is a lot of new members have been uh, persuaded to join by the various candidates in the party. And we don't know how many of them are going to vote for Barnier and how many of them are going to vote for the others. So it's a little bit hard to say. But uh, he certainly has a, a fighting chance of being the candidate and therefore being the person who's, who is very likely to stand against Macron. He's taken quite, uh, Barnier now I'm talking about, has taken quite aggressive lines on immigration and judicial sovereignty. Um, it surprised a few people. Could you just talk to us a little bit about that? I think that's kind of what you were referring to earlier about the the way the whole sort of landscape has shifted to the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the candidates of the centre-right have taken quite uh, far-right-ish policies and, and adopted them, including on migration, uh, where Barnier, for example, is calling for a moratorium of three to five years on migration. Uh, and he's also taken this kind of right-wing nationalist sovereigntist view that uh, you know european law should not be uh, should not have primacy over french law particularly on matters of immigration so uh, yeah he he has he has moved to the right but then so so have all the others now, in a in the post Brexit, post Merkel landscape, France finds itself increasingly thrown, in, in my view, by the geopolitical winds of change. We saw that in recent months the rather public row now dubbed as the AUKUS dispute over that large submarine contract. And whilst the sums involved were vast, 
maybe far more damaging was their political um, reputation or embarrassment on the world stage. Um, do you feel that that's something that uh, still resonates in France or is that something that, you know, the politicians care about but people won't? I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, I think this is not something that's going to have a big role in uh, domestic politics. You know, Macron, as the president of France, does do all the foreign policy, essentially. And this was a blow to him. Uh, but I don't think it's going to have much impact on, on the election at this stage, um, especially since, you know, there was a sort of moment of humiliation and, and angst. But basically, the, the bridges have been rebuilt with the Americans and will eventually probably be rebuilt with the um, Australians, uh, although that's not happening yet. But and, and the re relationship between France and Britain was already very shaky because of sort of mutual abuse over everything from fish to the consequences of Brexit. Uh, yeah, as you've, you've identified earlier in these primary stages of an election, it, the politicians can have a very different agenda to what the electorate actually care about. So just facing and finally facing into the election in, in 2022, what are the key items for the for the, the French electorate as opposed to the French politicians? Well, yeah, uh, you were uh, we were talking earlier about Eric Zemmour and the far right and, and Marine Le Pen. And unfortunately, uh, migration and law and order uh, are going to be very big themes uh, in this election. Um, uh, because that is, you know, what everybody is talking about. Uh, you mentioned that Zamora was a kind of Trump-like, and he is. He's a genius for that kind of thing that attracts public attention. Whether you love it or hate it, you talk about it. You know, for example, Zamora said we should uh, we should ban foreign names like Mohammed and Kevin. You know, go figure. I think is Kevin an Irish name? I think it might be originally, but anyway, um, uh, the the uh, obviously this you know was very unpopular with people called Kevin and Mohammed. Uh, very popular with people who dislike Muslims, but it it kind of, and it doesn't matter how absurd it is, the point is it got him talked about. So people are talking about issues of migration, they are talking about law and order. There's not that much talk about the economy, I think partly because it's sort of, uh, you know, obviously it took a hit in COVID, but it's come back and the French have, again, they've done as well as or better than, than some of their European neighbours. Um, and, uh, you know, unemployment is, uh, is is sort of back down to the levels it was before the, uh, the crisis. So, yeah, I think, uh, unfortunately, migration is going to be a big issue in this election. Well, Victor, uh, thank you very much for your insights uh, today, which are fascinating as always. In my view, I hope that you'll be able to join us again, maybe nearer to the election to give us more predictions that we can hold you to. And I don't know what somebody called Kevin did to Mr. Zamora, but uh, we'll watch this space with interest. Victor Mallet of the Financial Times, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, the global inflation that's happening right now is a consequence of a really strong rebound in demand set against a shortage of supply on many, many goods. What started out as a niche concern at the beginning of 2021 is now the main economic issue that's consuming most governments around the world. We're joined now by Owana Pei, who is Assistant Professor at the School of Economics at University College Dublin to examine this issue. Owana, you're very welcome. Thanks you for joining us on News Talk today. Thank you for having me. Now, Anna, we heard earlier in this week the, the Irish Central Bank Governor talk about inflation and its impact on Irish households. He said he was very, very concerned, but that patience was the right response right now. To start us off, could you just take us through some of the things that are driving inflation at the moment? So 
this is the largest annual change in prices we have seen in Ireland since April 2007. Uh, inflation rates stand at around 5%. And the main factor behind it is a so-called cost push or supply side shock, which is mainly the result of a global rise in fuel and energy prices, but also supply bottlenecks due to the pandemic which caused some firms to experience shortages of inputs and raw materials or shipping delays. So more precisely, the biggest contribution to this increase in the consumer price index last month came from the transport sector, where car fuel prices increased by 23%, motor car prices were up by around 8%, and airline prices, airline ticket prices also saw significant price jumps. Higher rents, but also higher costs of home heating, electricity, and gas also explain about 11% of the overall increase in the consumer price index. But there are also sectors where prices have decreased, such as clothing and footwear, for example, which saw a price decrease of around 2.4%. Euro area inflation is at around 4.1%, and it's largely driven by the same cost push or supply side factors. Oh, and could, could I just come in there and ask you, as just as the trends are not unique to Ireland, so too the solutions are not unique to Ireland. Can you just talk us through what um, mechanics governments have, what mechanisms governments and central banks around the world have to try and counteract these inflation rises? The main policy tool is monetary policy. Um, so central bank uh, banks aim to keep inflation uh, stable and prices stable. So the ECB's monetary policy options going forward will largely depend on whether the increase in prices that we have seen over the last couple of months is a temporary one or a longer term. So the ECB forecast, for example, puts average inflation at 2.2% in 2021, peaking in the last quarter of this year, followed by a fall to 1.7% in 2022 and 1.5% in 2023. And this is because, mainly because it expects the supply bottlenecks to ease and energy prices to drop. And we have seen the first signs of that in the future markets for natural gas prices, for example. But we've also seen a growing expectation that they will use interest rate rises to deal with this issue. Could you talk us through what is expected there from the US and across Europe? So the main policy tool that the ECB can use at this point is to increase interest rates. Um, and decrease is uh, its asset purchase program. And this, as I said, largely depends on whether the inflation rates that we are seeing are transitory or not. But you have to keep in mind that uh, inflation has been persistently below the target for much of the time since the global financial crisis, despite monetary policy in Euro area and, and in the US being very expansionary throughout this period. So I was listening to your colleague, uh, Carl Whelan from UCD last week, was speaking to the Oireachtas Committee and one of the other tools that was suggested to deal with the inflation issues in Ireland, particularly on the energy prices, uh, was the issue of VAT reduction. Um, and he said that he was glad that the government hadn't reduced VAT rates in Ireland in the budget or even given things like restaurant vouchers out to households to deal with the pandemic because he felt that they could fan the flames of what is already a really uncomfortably high level of inflation. What's your take on that? I agree. Um, so while the main causes of the high inflation we have seen over the last couple of months are externally driven, 
further fiscal stimulus, um, such as uh, uh, reducing VAT rates or um, restaurant voucher, would cause prices to rise even further through a demand side channel. Mm. So we already seen, for example, prices in the restaurants and hotel sectors have increased on average by 4.1% as compared to last year. So measures such as restaurant vouchers, which only create excess demand, would push prices even higher. So driving down demand is, is quite a tricky business. Um, increasing interest rates is a tricky and delicate situation for governments. They have to be really careful that they don't do something else like spark a, a, a rise in wage demands, for example. That's true. I think central banks are now facing a very difficult trade-off between the cost of tightening monetary policies or rising interest rates prematurely, which will weaken the recovery from the pandemic recession, and the costs of inflation. So inflation dynamics in the near future are mainly driven by the supply side, uh, which is energy prices. The central bank should hold off in rising interest rates, um, which can can hurt the the economic recovery. If we see inflation expectations spiral and wage increases as well, then the future cost of inflation might rise significantly. So an increase in interest rates might happen sooner um, than we expect right now. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Ona Peya, who is Assistant Professor at the School of Economics at University College Dublin. Ona, could I just ask you about um, the mortgage holders in this um, scenario? If interest rates increase as they are expected to, what will that mean for mortgage holders and for indeed for people who are trying to get on the property ladder and get mortgages now? Well, increases in interest rates, as most mortgage holders will have a variable uh, interest rate, will affect them directly, right? Uh, Variable interest rates are just key policy rate plus a bank markup. Banks are not going to change their markup, so any increase in the key policy rate, so if the ECB increases interest rate, will translate to an increase in variable interest rates, and this will uh, increase uh, their, their interest burden. So this is going to be, um, it's going to have a, a, a very contractionary effect on the economy. That is, that is why I think the ECB is being cautious. And I think their first response has been to wait and see whether the inflation rates that we are seeing are indeed transitory um, or not. Um, if uh, in the future, um, the only, the main factor that is driving inflation, is still a supply side. So it's mainly energy prices. Then we expect that this, Uh, should lessen uh, in the future. However, a concern um, happens when um, other factors come into play, such as a change in inflation expectations or a change in in wages, which is driven by inflation expectations. And when this happens, we could see an inflationary spiral and hence an increase in, in interest rates. Just looking at the the longer term picture, um, some have been critical of the role of central banks and the ECP in terms of interest rates and that they've allowed long term low interest rates to dominate for far too long and that now we just all expect it. Well, the reason why interest rates have been so low for such a long time is that before the pandemic and for much of the period since 2008, inflation has been stubbornly low and economic growth very weak. Right. The Fed has already had already started increasing interest rates in 2017 when the U.S. inflation started to pick up. But in the euro area, inflation has been persistently below the two percent target. So the risk of high interest of interest rates being too low for a long period is first that they fuel a credit driven boom, which is what we have seen in Ireland prior to 2008. But this has not been the case so far. 
The other risk is, of course, high, high inflation. But as I mentioned earlier, the inflation we see today is not primarily demand-driven, but supply-driven. So I believe that credible central banks could rein in further increases in inflation should they occur by tightening monetary policy in the future. But this, as I mentioned, co comes at a cost of weakening the recovery from the pandemic um, recession. So acting too soon in raising interest rates might be very costly in terms of output losses. Yeah, if you just look at the US and the divergence between their interest rates and their inflation rates at, at 6% now, it's it's not an ideal scenario when you'd be expecting those to be much more aligned with each other. Can I just, um, Oana, for a second, look at a, a different side of the Irish economy, if I, if I could. Um, the investment activities of multinationals have contributed significantly to the Irish tax take. It's, in fact, what keeps us so buoyant. Do you think that the trend of the take that we have from multinational companies will continue next year in 2022? And how do you think the corporation tax changes that were recently announced affect uh, Ireland's relationship with multinationals going forward? Yeah, so investment by firms tends to be very volatile when the economy faces, faces huge uncertainty. And this is what we have seen over the past two years. So it's unlikely that the recent tax changes are an important driver of what is happening right now with the volatility of investment. But going forward, I think most evidence seems to suggest that Ireland will remain strong, in a strong position to attract foreign direct investment. I think investing in higher education to ensure that foreign firms have a great pool of talent here in Ireland or reforms, ease of doing business reforms, are more likely to matter more than the tax rate, which stood at 12.5%, which many big tech firms actually never paid in the, in the first place. Um, oh, and I'll just ask one final question, if I may, and it's about the thing that economists likes to do most, make some predictions. Could you tell us what you think is going to happen on the inflationary front in the short to medium term and how the ECB and other central banks will react in terms of uh, rate increases? I think there's considerable uncertainty around the inflation um, outlook, and there are definitely many market participants who believe that the ECB is underestimating inflationary pressures and will likely have to announce an uh, increase in interest rate before the start of 2023. But we have to keep in mind, as I said, that inflation has been persistently low. And the ECB now targets an inflation rate of 2% over the medium run. And this is important because it suggests that a rate of inflation of 4% that we see today might not be above the, 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 this target of 2% over the medium run. So I think the ECB has more room to postpone interest rate increases and would not be um, the first one to move to increase um, interest rates. What we have to pay attention at the next uh, meeting on December 16 is what is happening to their asset purchase programs. So the ECB is expected to uh, win down the purchase, the pandemic emergency purchase program at this meeting but still continue to buy bonds under its regular asset uh, bonds buying uh, asset purchase program. OK, we leave it there. It's looking far less likely that the growth in inflation is a transitory thing and perhaps it is something more permanent that policymakers will need to deal with in the future as well. That's Oana Peya, Assistant Professor at the School of Economics at University College Dublin. Oana, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you.
Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We've got a bit more time in the podcast, so there are extended conversations with our guests today. For now, though, I'd like to thank the production team of Simon Keane and Ronan Coveney with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day. Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if you're locked out on a Thursday and need a locksmith, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details.